0: Welcome to Inspired by Failure Lessons Learned from the Journey of Epic Ideas. I'm your host, Michi Yamamoto. This is where we talk to inventors and learn from their successes and failures to inspire us and help us change the world. In this episode, I interview Kayla Wynn. Kayla invented MPAT. MPAT is a highly efficient detector for the electron microscope. This detector resulted in the Guinness World Record for the highest resolution microscope in the world. I'm curious how she made it. We have a Facebook group where we can continue our conversation about her or her ideas. Please check out michiyamamoto.com. Thank you, Kayla, for joining the show today. Can you tell us what triggered the idea? Of
1: Okay, we collaborated with um, Professor Gruner and his group. Professor Gruner is a really well-known person in the field of x-ray detector technology. So he builds um, x-ray detectors for um, synchrotron sources all over the US and all over the world. He started building detectors for free electron lasers. Those detectors actually have a lot of dynamic range. He started building detectors with more, more dynamic range than they have before for x-ray detectors. So we had this idea of why not take this detector for a free electron laser and put it into the electron microscope and see what happens. And what happened? Well, we actually did that <laughs> and we put the, electro- the that detector into the electron microscope, it got caught on fire. <laughs> oh, what's wrong? <laughs> so, so there was this fire. And so one thing they didn't realize was... Um, the board that we were using was for an X-ray board, but um, and it it didn't wasn't able to handle the readout that we're getting for the um, electron microscope. So something saturated, or something happened, or there was a loose cable, and it just caught on fire. So um, after two thousand six, that project kind of died, and then I think starting in two thousand and fourteen, um, there were a new generation of students, um, myself included, and then we thought. Why not try this project again? And why not put the electron um, detector into the electron microscope and see if we can actually capture that information that we weren't able to capture about 10 years ago?
0: So what happened?
1: And so what happened was we did it. And we put it in and it worked. And it worked really, really well. Cool. Um, But the problem was that Now we're getting all the signal, we're getting these diffraction patterns. How do you read in the data? How do you write a program to actually understand what you're getting? So a lot of my PhD was trying to get the detector to work and then write algorithms to get useful information from the data and design experiments so that people can um, use this data to uncover new physics and things like that.
0: Can you educate me on what the detector is?
1: I'll start off with an analogy because electron microscopy is very similar to light microscopy. So when you take a picture with your camera, you're using the light. So the light that um, you flash the light or the light that's outside gets focused to the lens. And from that, there is um, kind of like a charge couple detector, like a CCD detector or some kind of uh, fluorescent detector that takes the light signal and converts it to a digital image or to a photograph. So that's basically a light detector for a camera. So that's how you capture images. Now, the same thing works for electrons. Um, When instead of having a ray of light, you have a ray of a bunch of electrons and it's shooting at the sample. Let's say a bunch of electrons is shooting at you. Now, for electrons, you also need that kind of detector. Um, You're not going to exactly use a charge couple detector. You can use different types of detector to detect the signal coming from electrons.
0: What about the detector for MPAD?
1: So for the MPAD, it stands for Electron Microscope Pixel Array Detector. Have you ever looked at images of atoms?
0: I think I saw that in your TED talk presentation.
1: Essentially um, you can do the same thing with light. You can take pictures using light like we do every day or you or, um, and there's, a, there's the electron equivalent. Because electrons are um, these wave particles and the wavelengths are very, very small, you can break the limit of diffraction that you have of light and then be able to take angstrom or sub angstrom resolution images. So that's the great thing about electrons. However, electron detectors are not as good as the images that you see itself. So the problem with electron detectors is that they tend to saturate all the time because the incident beam that you look at it's very bright the brightness is, is as bright as the center of the sun it's very very bright and so most detectors they saturate so if you want to capture the full scattering information it makes it very difficult because you don't have enough dynamic range in your detector
0: what resource do you use the most often
1: it was definitely um, the people around me. So um, it was, to build the MPAD was a huge collaboration between a couple of different groups. Um, My group is the electron microscopy group, so that's our expertise. And then Professor Gruner's group, um, his group, they're amazing um, scientists and engineers, and they're the ones who design detectors for X-ray sources and, electron lasers, and um, now electron microscopy, electron microscope uh, detectors. It wasn't resources, it was just working with a lot of people with a lot of expertise, and it was definitely a group effort to get this detector to work, and to uncover new information, new physics. My friend who did the typography, Yi, uh, Yi Zheng, he was actually a theoretical physicist, so he actually doesn't do any experiments.
0: What? was he doing?
1: And so we gave him um, the diffraction patterns, and he used that, those diffraction patterns to develop an, a tichographic algorithm that will give us this high-resolution images.
0: So right. did you mention typographic algorithm? Could you elaborate?
1: Okay, when the electron scatters off a sample, you get the exit wave function. And that exit wave function has an amplitude, and it also has a phase. When you actually capture that information in your detector, you lose that phase information and all you get is just the amplitude. What this technique called tachymetry does, it helps you recover the phase information. And because it recovers the phase information, we're able to break this resolution limit. And that's how we're able to get the Guinness World Record for the highest resolution microscope in the world.
0: Wow, can you tell us more about
1: yeah, so the one of the problems with um, typography is that because you assume that the sample um, is a phase, and it works great for, um, do, you, do you know 2D materials, like for example, graphene?
0: Not what are 2D materials?
1: 2D materials are basically materials that are one atomic layer thick. So graphene is um, basically carbon atoms that can be made to be an atomic layer thick these materials in the world of physics is really great because they're very uh fundamental materials and the good thing about these materials is that they're very thin so you can um make like approximations that you can't make with real materials with these materials so um one of the reasons why we were able to break this Uh, world record for electron microscope is we use molybdenum disulfide stack on top of each other. So you have two layers of MOS2 and you stack on top of each other and you rotate slightly. So these are two atomic layer material. And when you have atomic layer material, you can assume a phase approximation. And you can assume that when the electron scatters off the sample, it picks up a phase and then you get that kind of information. However, um, with real materials that are Uh, more three-dimensional, like for example, if your material has a certain thickness that is more than two or three atomic layer, then this tachycography algorithm kind of breaks down. So it works great for very thin material, but it's not so great for thicker and thicker and thicker material. So the algorithm is still being developed for real materials where you can't actually assume a phase approximation. You can try, but you really, but um, it's very hard. And so um, you they're trying to make sure this algorithm converges and they're trying to understand how we can look at other materials not just two-dimensional materials and get this kind of high resolution typographic reconstruction
0: can you talk about how the project was evolved
1: um so when the project first started it was just um me and pradful and mark uh, dr tate And we kind of just wanted to get this detector to work. Um, There were people helping us like Dan, Daryl Chamberlain and Robbie and just other people helping us getting to work. And so once we actually got the detector to work, um, what else can, what do we do with the data? So my job was to take that data, try to analyze it and develop algorithms to make the data useful and to make the data readable to a general audience what's the process
0: of developing the algorithm?
1: Well, first of all, like you're, you're having these data sets, right? And you can't write up as TIFF files. You need to figure out a way to write them in a way that people can actually read them and, and understand them. So before we were just, um, um, each time we capture an image, we were saving it as like these large TIFF files, TIF images. And that's just not gonna work with like four gigabytes, 16 gigabytes data set. We need to compress that data into something smaller. So then we um, put that into .raw files.
0: Is it a bitmap formatted image?
1: Yeah, Mm. bitmap. Yeah. Mm. So now you have these .raw files, and you read it into your computer. But what are you going to do with it? Like, How do you reconstruct an image from it? And so my job was to try to develop algorithms to actually take this data and then make a picture out of it.
0: What's the biggest challenge you've had to overcome?
1: the first thing was it got caught on fire in 2006. That was an epic failure because that delayed the project for a very long time. We, we didn't understand the technology that well at that time to get it to work. The second part was that um, when we had the data, we had no idea what to do with it. I had to read uh, papers, look at uh, things. And I was also a very young grad student. So I had to Um, It it was very slow for me. I had to learn a lot of different things um, to actually get things to work because you have this whole entire new field that no one has done before and you just and as a scientist you need to figure out what you um, can um, what you can do with this data to actually reconstruct it. So I had to end up reading a lot of papers I rely a lot on my advisor. We talked about the situation and then And then the last thing was, how do you design experiments to get really interesting information from this?
0: Have you had any big failures in your experiments?
1: It wasn't like an epic failure. It was more of like a marathon of failures, like every single day trying to figure out now we get to step one. How do we go to step two? And then usually it's like we take 10 steps back. So we are like at minus eight and then we slowly move forward.
0: What surprises people who are new to this field?
1: Okay. Funny thing, I didn't realize how much data we were generating. And I was like, oh crap. What happened was and my computer was this puny 16 gigabyte like desktop computer, right? That runs on 16 gigabyte m- memory. And I was like, okay, uh crap. So I literally just bought more memory and then shove it into my computer. And then um, I went on Amazon and I bought like ten five terabyte hard drives so I can save all the data no because we had this whole data overload and uh, because each day of the experiment was 150 gigabytes of data
0: what would you do differently
1: let um, I me mean, think I guess I would get a better computer in the, in the beginning I think so too but but even but the fact that I didn't have a great computer taught me how to write feather algorithms
0: It feels like you are building a platform for other scientists, so they can build something on top of it.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. I think that people can use this as a tool, and then um, this tool can be very useful in different fields.
0: In your TED talk, you mentioned Toyota Mirai. Can your research involve hydrogen fuel cell researchers?
1: A hundred percent. The thing is that right now there are tons of research uh, where people are working on callus. They're trying to make it cheaper because you're going to need a ton of callus in your fuel cell itself to actually, um, you know, take hydrogen gas and oxygen gas and then use that and convert that into water. You're going to you're just going to need to make that reaction happen and you're going to need those catalysts to run the reaction. Um, It's happening at like the nanometer scale, the atomic resolution scale. And so you're gonna need to understand and develop better materials for that. And this technology is extremely useful.
0: Oh, definitely. Thank you, Kayla, for joining and sharing today.
1: Thank you so much. I will talk to you later.
0: In this episode, Kayla shared with us her journey to develop the highest resolution microscope in the world. She revisited The idea which had failed a decade ago, we tried it and made it work really well. Her work, MPAT, will benefit a large number of researchers across a wide range of scientific fields. We have a Facebook group where we can continue our conversation about her or her ideas. Please check out michiyamamoto.com. Thanks for listening to Inspired by Failure, Lessons Learned from the Journey of Epic Ideas. Stay tuned for our next guest.